Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results with your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is John F. Kramer. John is the Chief Financial Officer of BCC Engineering, which is headquartered in Miami, Florida. BCC has offices throughout the state of Florida, Texas, Georgia, and Puerto Rico. It is a multidiscipline engineering, program management, and construction services firm that provides alternate delivery services, civil engineering, and site development, planning, program management, structural engineering, transportation engineering, and water and wastewater services. John specialized in the engineering, architecture, construction industry at KPMG and has 28 years of experience working for international EAC companies. He has worked in Indonesia, Panama, India, and Saudi Arabia. From 2014 through 2019, he lived in Saudi Arabia, working for the Royal Commission Yanbu and for the public investment funds Kadaya Investment Company. John is a CPA with an MS in accounting and an MBA in finance. He has been married to his wife, Jamie, for 31 years, and they have six children together. John, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's great to be here, Megan. I uh, really enjoy listening to your podcast. Well, thank you. I'm really looking forward to this discussion, which will take a look at what it's like to be an expatriate and doing business in a foreign country, as well as how to manage diverse global teams with cultural differences and communication barriers. So let's get started. So first, tell me about your career progression and how you got to where you are now. Sure. I went to the University of Missouri. I have a couple master's degree in MBA in finance and a master's in accounting. I'm a CPA and I started off my finance career at KPMG, which was just a great experience in Kansas City. And while at KPMG, I got into the um, engineering construction field, just from an audit standpoint, you know, there is a lot of engineering construction firms in Kansas City. I would venture to guess there's probably $20 billion of that. And it's very interesting that Kansas City seems to be a hub for that. Yeah. Uh, but I've worked at uh, some of the big places there. And um, in almost all of them, I've had international experience. And that ultimately uh, brought me to what we're going to talk a little bit or a lot about today is my experience in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Uh, currently, I'm working for BCC Engineering in um, Miami, Florida, and we are a multidiscipline firm. We are an engineering firm. We design structures and roadways and toll roads and construction engineering inspection work. And I've been here for nine months, and I just really enjoy what I'm doing. So um, I'm the chief financial officer. I work for a great guy named Jose Munoz. And uh, it's not, not even never a dull moment here. We're going through changes with uh, ASC 606, which probably a lot of people that may listen to this podcast are going through. And I just can't tell you how much fun that is. And, um, you know, we're pursuing acquisitions. We had two acquisitions last year. We have more coming up this year. So even at my level of experience, I am still learning things uh, day after day. So 
it's so uh, important. It's run. It sounds like an exciting place to work. And yeah, I think it's so important just the continue the continuous learning and, and feeling like you're always growing. I think that makes for an exciting uh, career. Absolutely. So are there any particular stories or moves that stand out in your mind as turning points throughout your career? Yeah, I, I would say uh, the first one is when I worked at Black and Beach Engineering in Kansas City, I was going to take a job in Jakarta, Indonesia. I've been over there for about a month working on uh, the financial portions of uh, two large power plant projects. And I was actually scheduled to go work over there, take my family over there. And uh, we were going to have our third child over in, uh, actually, we would have the baby in uh, Singapore, but um, actually a different company in Kansas City called me, someone who I used to work with at uh, KPMG, Lori Stubbers, and uh, I went to work there. And um, that was a big turning point because uh, I spent uh, 15 years at that company. And you know, that really, that solidified my career. I held a lot of different positions in operations, finance, and in corporate finance, and uh, ascended to the role of the, uh, we called it the corporate financial officer of the uh, $800 million subsidiary, which was infrastructure. So that was a huge turning point. But probably the biggest turning point in my career was at my son's basketball game. On a Saturday morning at 8 a.m., I had a uh, an email that came across, and I was looking at my phone, and it said, uh, "Hi, John. I'm uh, so and so at uh, Parsons Corporation, and would you like to go to work in Saudi Arabia?" And of course, I thought this was a junk email, and uh, I, of course, said, "Absolutely. When can I start?" and uh, to my surprise, uh, the person called me back and said, hey, we can have an interview with you on Monday. And uh, I began to think that uh, this is serious at this point. So I interviewed. It was quite a process. And uh, before I knew it, two months later, I was uh, landing on an airplane in uh, Saudi Arabia, beginning my expat career. Wow. Um, that is a life-changing email. <laughs> So you touched on it a bit, but tell us about your current organization. Yeah, we, uh, like I said, we are a a designer. We team with uh, contractors and deliver civil and structural engineering projects from a design build standpoint. Most of our jobs are in a design bid build, the more traditional format, and a big growing part of our uh, practice is construction, engineering, inspection. And we have just recently, through acquisition, expanded our footprint in Atlanta and Georgia, in Texas, based out of Dallas and then Houston. We're all over Miami, or we're all over Florida, and uh, our headquarters are in Miami. So, like I said, BCC is a it's a fantastic organization. It's uh, It's been my best experience. And uh, like I said, we talked about it. 
even at this uh, advanced <laughs> age, so to speak, I'm learning every day. So I have a great team. And do you guys do projects around the world or just here in the United States? Yeah, we're here in the United States. We do have a subsidiary in Puerto Rico, and there's uh, quite a lot of work down there. There's a lot of U.S. firms down there, and there's a lot of uh, civil structural work there. So um, even at BCC here in Florida, I am still involved with uh, uh, different aspects of business overseas, uh, and then different things like transfer pricing, et cetera, and all those uh, accounting and operational issues. So let's talk about business in a foreign country. Where around the world have you worked? Yeah, actually, I've worked in uh, Jakarta, Indonesia, on a power plant job. I ran projects from a finance perspective in Argentina. I was involved in a design-build project in Panama to build a new legislative center. In India, I was involved with the purchase of an engineering company that uh, really was originally an outsourcing-type company for the company I worked for, and then we, we bought it and brought it in-house. And then, of course, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and uh, now in Puerto Rico. And when you've traveled to those places, like how long are you there for? Is it a couple months or a couple years? No, I, the only place that I have lived is in um, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. I spent uh, a little bit over a month in Jakarta and the rest of those countries. I, well, I spent a lot of time in India. I was probably there for, you know, in total, the acquisition, 90 days. But most of those were anywhere from uh, a week trip to, as I said, three months. What an amazing experience to see many parts of the world. You know, it really is. And uh, this may sound corny, but I really, really uh, feel this way. It just, in all my international travels, and I've been fortunate you know, to do it through business, there was never a greater thing when I was traveling than to hear the guys at Customs say, hello, Mr. Kramer, welcome home. And uh, the United States, I feel like that we that are born here just hit the world lottery. And that's just reinforced through uh, everywhere, I, uh, everywhere I travel. I don't think that sounds corny at all. I, I feel the same way when I come home. Yeah. So let's talk specifically about Saudi Arabia. What were your first impressions? Yeah, that's, uh, I think it starts with, um, you know, I, I worked first as a seconded employee for Parsons Corporation, who's headquartered in Pasadena. And I had to go through a series of many health tests. They just want to make sure that, you know, nobody has things like tuberculosis uh, to bring in the country. And uh, I had a, a you know, a couple day physical that uh, was just everything was tested. I knew I was pretty healthy after I got through that. But the point that I would say I started at was uh, filling out the uh, the paperwork for the kingdom. And I actually, at the very end, they passed me a piece of paper. And I had to sign this. And it said, I'm paraphrasing, that um, 
I understand if I bring any illicit drugs into the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, that I understand that I would be put to death. And so that was the very beginning. Signing a document like that, of course, I had no intention of doing that, but uh, that was quite sobering. So wow. I look back at it. Uh, I wish I would have saved that piece of paper, actually. It's, it's kind of funny to look back at. But um, I arrived in Jeddah, which is the second largest city on the uh, West Coast, uh, along the Red Sea and Saudi Arabia. And the city that I was traveling to is called Yambor, and it's about 300 kilometers north of Jeddah. I was uh, picked up by a driver. He was late. And, you know, as I was standing there, I was really the only Westerner that I saw. The women were wearing abayas with niqabs. So all you could see was their, uh, their eyes. There were pilgrims coming in from many different foreign countries to visit Mecca and Medina. And then you just had your, your Saudi guys uh, in their full clothes and uh, gutras for the headdress. You know, so I, I stood around there and it just felt like I was in a different country. I was treated very well. But as we drove up, we finally drove up to uh, Yambor. The sun was setting over the Red Sea. And it was kind of like these, uh, it was almost like a scene in the movie. You know, every uh, 30, 40 kilometers, there was a uh, refinery with, uh, you know, the burn off on, on top of the stack against the sun setting on the Red Sea. It was uh, almost a surreal experience. Yeah, that was... Definitely, a, uh, I just felt like it was in a movie almost. And we, we drove up, and I stayed in the hotel, the Movenpick. And I ended up staying there for about three months until they got my housing settled. And just the thing when you're an expat, the different things you would take for granted, like setting up a bank account, getting a phone, understanding how you can contact your family back home because I, I have six kids, a wonderful wife, and um, my three younger kids were going to join me, but I was going to be there probably for six months before they would. And so just all of that was just, um, <laughs> I wouldn't say it was overwhelming, but it was almost surreal. I just remember one thing I remember was getting a phone, and trying to make phone calls. And it would be like in the United States that depending on who you're calling, you would drop a, a, a digit, the phone number, you know. And uh, it just took me a long time to really figure out how to use the phone even. So um, I'm sure yeah, there's like got, a million challenges that we don't even think about before we embark on a, a an adventure like that. Yeah, it, it really is. And um Parsons was a great company to, to work for, but the onboarding, everybody was thin. It was, it was uh, growing. And, uh, yeah, it, it just, uh, they subsequently made the onboarding a lot better, but it was pretty much uh, grab, make a friend, and have him show you the ropes. Because Parsons had about 100 people over there and uh, working for the Royal Commission, who I worked for in Yambor. But my first day at work, to so celebrate me coming, and the, the Saudis were incredibly hospitable. 
they brought me warm, unpasteurized camel milk for dates. And I was just sitting here thinking, oh my God, this is going to be a stomach ache. That's <laughs> <what you do." laughs> so they poured me one cup. I chugged it down. They poured me a, another one. I chugged it down and uh, just ate a bunch of dates. It, uh, it was like hot, wild goat's milk. It was like gamey goat's milk. Ugh. And, uh, but, uh, anyway, then I met my boss, uh, Abdul Rahman Ben Talal, who was just a great guy. And, uh, you know, that's how I got started. Those, I, I've kind of come through my first two days in Saudi and, uh, it was quite an adventure. So just out of curiosity, what led them to seek you out with that email? Yeah. You know, um, Actually, I had applied to Parsons Corporation in Pasadena for a corporate finance role, and I guess I was in their database, so they were just mining that. They matched up with the uh, my international experience with uh, the type of person they needed, and so uh, I guess that's why they called me. So you worked at Parsons when you went to Saudi Arabia. What was your role with them? Yeah, actually, and I, I was working for Parsons, but I was a seconded employee, which in our industry means that I was lent to the finance department at the Royal Commission. So basically, I did not report to anyone from Parsons. Technically, my direct line reporting was to the the Saudi director of accounting and then the uh, Saudi CFO. So, um, you know, it was... uh, very interesting. Like I said, uh, Abdul Rahman Ben was just a great manager, and the CFO Salamaki was uh, equally as great. And uh, you know, they all spoke English, so that was very good. I didn't know how well the English would be spoken there. So uh, you know, with that, I just kind of uh, settled in and began my duties. So let's talk about being an expat. Always sounds so exotic and exciting, but what is it really like and what does it take? Yeah, you know, it's, um, it is exotic. And the expat packages, so to speak, have changed a little bit. But I'll talk about the exotic part of it. When my, my wife and uh, three younger children joined me after I'd been there for six months for the second semester of the school year in 2015, we were able to travel to Jordan, Oman, Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, Cairo, the UAE. So that package and the time we were able to have off was very, very, it was just outstanding for my kids to see these different cultures. You know, that was the exotic part of it. But when I got into my role, at the Royal Commission, I was tasked with two different things. They were trying to move from castor accrual to be uh, compliant with uh, IPSAS, which is International Public uh, Standards, and uh, being compliant with the uh, D20. So I did that, and then they wanted to put together a fixed asset inventory again, uh, according to IPSAS. Now, this was a 50-year old city that was built out of the desert and there weren't really any financial records 
of fixed assets. And so that was quite a challenge to put that together. So to all those people out there who are thinking that this might be something for them, would you recommend it? And if so, how does one go about getting a role that allows them to, to travel across the globe? Yeah, I would absolutely recommend it. The younger you are, I think the better. If my kids would have been at the ages of early and grade school, I probably would have stayed there longer. My kids were teenagers and very uh, active in sports. Uh, in fact, my two girls ended up getting scholarships to play soccer here in the United States. But if we wouldn't have gone back, they probably wouldn't have got the scholarships. But aside from that, well, I guess I would say if you were to go, want to go overseas, I talked about being young and doing it. The expat deals are, are fantastic and they're still pretty good, but they're not as good as they used to be. And I can get into that more with Saudization, at least in the, the kingdom. But you would join with a company that has uh, multinational operations. And my feeling is if you hold up your hand and show a willingness to do that and you have the right makeup, which would mean that you know, you're viewed as someone who's pretty flexible, tolerant, open to new ideas, you'd be a good candidate. But um, there's a lot of consulting firms over there, the best in the world, McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group. And um, I think landing a job with them, uh, they are looking for people to go overseas. And then, of course, without a doubt, whatever language is spoken in the country that you're uh, going to, becoming fluent in that would, you know, obviously be a huge plus. And how did your wife like living over there, just out of curiosity again? And how was it on your family? Did, did they enjoy it or was it difficult at all for them? Yeah, it's, uh, and talk about the stories here. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, that uh, I've already mentioned a little bit. My wife, a wonderful woman. Before we, uh, like I said, we've had six kids and we've been married 31 years. She's moved to Boston with me. She's moved to Southern California with me, but she was willing to move to Saudi Arabia. And uh, without that support, you know, it, uh, it just wouldn't have worked. But she was game to do it. And it's very different. The Western women there wear the, the cobs, which is what you see on TV. It, it covers their head. And of course, the abayas cover their body all in black. And all you can see is people's eyes. Now, the Western women only had to wear abayas. They did not have to cover their hair, their, their whole head, except for their eyes. My wife has blonde hair, so she stuck out like a... Uh, uh, just <laughs> as you can imagine, blonde yeah. hair when everyone else has black hair. But it was funny. We would go to malls, and my uh, two daughters who were there, and my son, I was there. My son has red hair. My two daughters, one daughter has light hair, and the other one has brown hair. And uh, we were in a supermarket one time, and my daughter, who was probably in freshman in high school, was looking over the uh, 
fruit to pick something out and a woman came up behind her, started touching her hair and feeling it just because it was a different color. And uh, obviously that shocked my wife and it shocked my daughter, but the lady was just fascinated. And then my kids went to an international school. And I would say this about a lot of uh, kids, certainly from Kansas City and throughout the United States. It's not just by any means limited to my kids, but they went to an international school in Yambu. And then when we moved uh, to Riyadh, my daughter went to the American school uh, in Riyadh, capital. But they were kind of rock stars there. <laughs> As a matter of fact, my, uh, my older daughter that was there is, is pretty tall. And she made friends with another American who was pretty tall. And uh, for better or worse, uh, the kids called them the Twin Towers. Uh, <laughs> this was not uh, anything sinister or anything like that. But they're, both of them were good in sports. And uh, so the sports was really fun because we played with the people all throughout. Or we played teams throughout the kingdom. And uh, at the school... You had some Americans, but you had a large population. There were Saudis in there even in the international school. And then there was uh, Pakistani kids and some Indian kids. You know, obviously their parents or dads were uh, expats. And so you look at the team pictures and it's really funny to see all these guys and then my son with this uh, strawberry blonde hair and pale white skin. So. But they really enjoyed it. I think it opened their eyes. It was just fantastic. They made friends from all over the world. And it really, it goes back to the corny comment I made. Sometimes we get cynical about the United States. But, uh, you know, I think the, this world experience made them appreciate it a lot more. So it was a great experience for my family. Yeah, it sounds like it was amazing. And yeah, I don't think there's any better way to learn than to travel. There's just no better experience in the world, I think, than to board a plane and get off in another country and, and learn their cultures, customs. And I just love to travel. So, yeah, it's, uh, I agree with you, Megan. It's, uh, you know, we would uh, get on planes and I mentioned the countries that we went to, but we would go there, not know the customs. We just knew rudimentary Arabic, but, um, you know, just to go in there for anywhere from a long weekend to a week and try to assimilate into the culture as well as you can was, it was just fascinating. So what are some examples of cultural differences that you've encountered and how did you manage them? Yeah, the, um, a couple of different things come to mind is, um, you know, with the United States, we're used to the separation between church and state. Well, in Saudi Arabia, the laws are Sharia law, which basically means that they derive from the Quran. And, um, you know, Saudis and all Muslims pray five times a day. And three of those prayer times during work hours. So the first day I was in uh, Yambor, and then later when I was on, uh, at Kadia in Riyadh, the call to prayer is over the loudspeaker. And um, the Saudi men and women would go into designated prayer rooms 
or if there wasn't one close, they would go into a director's office and they would all pray together. And of course, we had to have reverence for those prayers. And certainly I respected it. Uh, so we just kind of uh, sat at our desk during that. And, uh, you know, just that was a, I wouldn't say it's a rude awakening, but it's just something you don't uh, see at all in the United States. So that was uh, one of the big differences. Yeah, I've traveled to Istanbul and just the culture prayer is it's beautiful. It's like, it is. Uh, yeah, you can hear it anywhere. And it's just really like a haunting, beautiful sound. And it's funny because <laughs> that you say that when I was in Riyadh, we lived in the American compound and I lived in a few different places. And uh, I think just to tease us a little bit, there were mosques built right outside the compound and the speakers for the prayer were uh, pointed right down into the compound. And so, uh, you know, Fajr prayer comes pretty early. And uh, so they piped that and you could hear it. Uh, it would wake you up in the morning. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there was no sleeping in. There was no sleeping in. So did you actually hire Saudi, Saudi nationals and foreign nationals? And if so, describe that process. Yeah, actually I did. My team, and I'll talk more about Kadia. And uh, Kadia is a um, large project outside of Riyadh. And it is uh, 360 square kilometers with uh, 300 different unique attractions. There's going to be a Six Flags there, everything from a Six Flags to an opera house, to race tracks, to climbing uh, rock cliffs, everything you could think of, you know, teaching people how to drive Formula One. This was the project that I was on, and I was there at the inception as the director of financial accounting. And then I hired a team of, uh, I had Saudi men and one Saudi woman on the team. And it's interesting with the Saudi woman because that was kind of new. Kadia is a uh, very progressive project. It is championed by the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salam. And it was progressive in the standpoint that women were in the workplace, which I did not see in Yambor at all. But I had, uh, like I said, Saudi men, three of them, and a Saudi woman. I had someone from Afghanistan, a Palestinian gentleman, and somebody from Jordan. And uh, I would say that the, the hiring wasn't too much different, but it was from the standpoint that, uh, of course, I didn't know anything about the schools in Saudi Arabia. A lot of the applicants have been educated outside of Saudi Arabia, and they were fluent in English. But one of the interesting things was interviewing a woman that ultimately I hired who was wearing the abaya and then the cob. So in the interview, I could just see her glasses. I couldn't see her, but she had a great resume. Yeah, that would be, uh, that would be strange. And yeah, I'm, I see a lot of resumes from around the world and I'm always like surprised at what some countries will put on resumes, like 
religion, uh, marital status. I mean, you're right. You're right. We get used to and seeing things a certain way, and it's, it's we have to remind ourselves it's not always that way. It's not that way, and in, in the uh, getting used to seeing pictures on resumes is yep. very odd to me. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, do you have any tips for breaking down language or communication barriers? You know, I do, and not just based on my experience. Obviously, where you're at, do your best to learn the language, and you know, even if it starts out with standard greetings, that goes a long way. So I tried to learn the uh, standard greetings. How are you, Catholic? You know, all, all the different things. Good morning, good afternoon. Salam alaikum. Yeah, everything that uh, is just the standard things that you would say to pleasantries. But then the other thing I would say is learn words, because if you have a vocabulary, even if you don't know how to conjugate a verb, you can still get by. So learning a vocabulary of just, just words, you know, cat, dog, bathroom, restaurant, et cetera, can get you by. Another thing I would do with the, uh, the guys there is I would write down questions that I would use in everyday life. And I would ask them to translate that for me. And then I would ask them to translate a response that I might get that I might give to the uh, answer to my question. And then I would say, um, after you get into that, try to go formal and learn the conjugation. Arabic is very hard, obviously. Everybody's seen Arabic signs. The hardest thing I think about Arabic is that uh, they have about 27 characters, which is just like our alphabet. But the letter A would be a different symbol is whether it was an apple at the beginning of the word, it would be different than cats in the middle of the world word. And if you said abaya, it would be different at the end of the word. So you had three different ways to write this, and it just, <laughs> this is very, it's a tough language. Yeah, I had a hard enough time learning French and Spanish <laughs> throughout, and they, throughout yeah, school. <laughs> But you know, what I would say, Megan, is as terrible as my Arabic was, and, and we could rely a lot on English. When I tried, people's face lit up. Yeah. And they, they knew I was trying, and they knew I wasn't, uh, you know, just being uh, an arrogant outsider. And the thing I've learned very early on traveling throughout the world is if you speak English and you repeat yourself and say it louder and louder and slower and slower, they still don't get it. So, you know, you got to try to learn the language. Yeah, I think it goes a long way just to show you're making an effort, even if you exactly. never quite get there. Yeah, I agree. So what skills do you think that you need to possess in order to work and manage, work with and manage a multinational team? Yeah, I think it's really the basic principles are not too much different than you would have in the United States. You know, what I tried to do is when I hired somebody, I, I wanted to give them a career path and the ability to learn and obviously the, the ability to advance in their careers. 
I would get to know them, you know, on a, a semi-personal level, not, not, you know, something that's inappropriate. We get to know a little bit about their family, what they've got going on outside of work. And, you know, from a work standpoint, understand where they, they want to go. You know, the one thing I also tried to do is make worse work less stressful for them. I, we in the United States, from what I've seen, and, and obviously, Megan, you have a lot of experience as well. No matter where I've been, I haven't seen people work the crazy hours that we do in the United States. And, uh, you know, a lot of the attitude is the work will get done when it gets done. And um, they value family time. And um, I don't think their life gets out of balance, at least as much as my mine does. Uh, I don't want to speak for everybody, but um, you know, just just not trying to impose American standards on what they're doing. You know, I if they had um, issues, I'd try to resolve them quickly. I'd give them feedback. I would be very honest and open with them. So, you know, all that, probably not any different than I tried to do in the United States, uh, seemed to work there. So compare and contrast doing business in a foreign country versus here in the United States. Okay, well, you know, the first thing I would say is in the United States, and this, this happened in Indonesia when I first got into this, you know, to get our invoice processed, and we have some big invoices because we were building a power plant. In the United States, I've never got a request to buy a refrigerator from my cousin whose wedding it was uh, to get the invoice off to the next step. So that's probably one of the first <laughs> things that I think was interesting early in my career. The next thing I would say relative to surely Saudi Arabia is that laws for business and really laws through life in general, the cultural is uh, driven by Sharia law, which is driven by the teachings in the Quran. So that's different. Uh, one of the things that is very different that I had to understand learning contracts is right now, Saudi Arabia in Hijri and that just means the Muslim date is in the year 1442, I believe, while we're in 2021. And, and then uh, that, that uh, corresponds to, uh, I think, the year the Prophet Muhammad was born, or forgive me, maybe when he died, but it was uh, based on, on that. So that was interesting. You know, the other things... I've already mentioned uh, the, the culture fair was uh, just a shocking experience when I first started. And um, just the way contracts were written, not only the dates, but how specifically they dealt with different countries. And, um, you know, there's a rift with Israel and some of that was in contracts, you know, some of the older contracts. And so, you know, there was just, so many different things that were, that were different. Lastly, on a more personal note, what's one goal that you're hoping to accomplish either personally or professionally this year? Basically, I talked a little bit about uh, acquisitions and 
we are absorbing two acquisitions from the, the prior year, and we're looking at uh, many different um, uh, opportunities this year. And so this is really getting me familiar with ASC 606 and 805 and ASC 810 and uh, 350 and all these different uh, uh, details of these uh, accounting pronouncements. And really until I started getting into it, I just didn't realize the breadth of uh, what goes into purchase accounting, especially when you are purchasing a foreign subsidiary under a variable interest entity. So I know I quoted a lot of pronouncements there, but uh, just actually doing that and uh, getting these, these companies onboarded and set up financially. John, with all the traveling you've done, I'm sure you must have a few of your favorite stories. Would you mind sharing one or two of those with our audience today? So there's so many different uh, experiences that I had in Saudi Arabia. One of them was um, I went to buy a car in Jeddah. Like I said, it was 300 kilometers south. And uh, the gentleman who was selling me the car was, was very gracious. He walked me through the uh, all the ins and outs of licensing the car at the DMV. I had to bring cash. And when I got on the airport, I, I got on the plane, when I went through security, you know, they saw what was $25,000 in cash and they're wondering what I was doing with it. But uh, they let me on and then they let me through uh, when I arrived in Jeddah. And uh, so I bought this car and got it licensed and everything. And uh, so the guy asked me, he says, uh, do you mind if I, um, you uh, take me home? And I said, absolutely not. So we were, I was taking him back to his place and a mosque came up and he said, hey, it's, it's uh, do her prayer. Uh, do you mind if I go in and, and pray? And I said, absolutely. You know, you spent all day with me and uh, sure, how can I accommodate you? So he gets, we're parked on the far side of the street. He walks across the street. Then he comes back to my car and says, uh, would you like to come in? And I said, well, I'm a Catholic. I'm not allowed, am I? And uh he said, no, no, all you got to do is take your shoes off and uh, you're my guest and come on in. And so I walked in and it was all carpet. There was no chairs. And so he went up to where the front of this, that was kind of like an altar. And he, he uh, went through his prayers up there. And so I'm, he said, you can sit, you don't have to kneel. So I'm sitting there. I hear the door open and it's just me and the guy I bought the car from. Nobody else is in the mosque. And uh, someone comes up right behind me and says, John. And I'm sitting here thinking, well, I'm the only John here. I, who is this? He said, John Kramer. And uh, so I turned around and he said, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a friend of Samir's here. And um, I hear you're interested in converting to Islam. And I said, interesting. <laughs> I said, uh, I'm going to have to run that by the wife if I, uh, I'm going to do that. And so Samir comes up, and then I'm talking to both these guys, and they basically tried to convince me to convert to Islam on the spot. And what I felt was, you know, so I was I was looking around. You know, like I said, I've only been in this country for, for 30 days now, and we're the only guys 
in the mosque. And I, I just, I don't know what's going on or what to think. You can imagine how my mind is running wild. And, uh, but I kind of gained my senses and I said, okay, so what would it take if I wanted to sign up right now? And they said, well, you need to just say you accept Allah in your uh, heart and soul. And then uh, you're good. And so, you know, they said, yeah, yeah. And I said, you know, really, again, I'm going to have to run this by my wife. I don't know if she'd be up on this, you know, when she comes over here. I'm not Catholic anymore. I'm a Muslim. And uh, so I said, uh, guys, I'm going to have to think about it. Uh, can I get your numbers and I'll, I'll call you. And uh, so they gave me some pamphlets. And uh, they had my number already because I'd been talking to the guy in the car. So he said, uh, they, they sent me several texts and emails afterwards. And I just said, you know, guys, it's, it's not the right time. But uh, that was one story. Probably another interesting story was when I was at Kadia, we uh, had a budget presentation and uh, it's interesting because we're in our office and you wait until the handlers of the prints call you. And, you know, we just got the call in the afternoon at 2.30, 2.30 in the afternoon. Then you have to be over there in half an hour. So we go over there and we go into the, um, the prince's, uh, you know, his palace and his quarters. And I was expecting something like a, 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 you know, a big palace that you might see on TV, but it was more kind of like a really, really nice Ritz-Carlton or something with a bunch of beautiful buildings and gardens and, uh, multi, you know, many multiple, you know, just gardens, attractions, not attractions, but many buildings. And none so much stood out to me to be like a, uh, a palace. But we went into a room and uh, we went uh, four floors downstairs into this building. We waited until 1.30 in the morning, so 11 hours to be able to present. And uh, while we were waiting, there's consultants, if you can think about this, uh, presenting to the conference on a lot of different projects, a lot of different issues. And so all of us consultants, we had to check our phones at the door, but you're waiting in this waiting room with people from all over the worlds with different agendas, et cetera. And there's probably one of the best spreads of food I've ever seen in my life. So we waited there. But when it got close to our time to present, the uh, Yemen, it's the Houthi rebels, launched a missile from Yemen uh, towards the palace. Wow. And, um, you know, we got word of this and this was the second attack. So basically what happened was the crown prince, of course, didn't show up. We were there, but it was funny the next day I'm in the office. And again, this is a multicultural staff and, uh, I get a standing ovation because I was an American Patriots, uh, missiles, batteries outside of Riyadh shot it down. Um, wow, yeah, that's an amazing story. story. <laughs> yeah, and I'll tell you about a, uh, a Saudi wedding real quick. So when you go to a Saudi wedding uh, and most of the marriages are arranged, 
And before you get to say yes or no, whether you're a woman or a man, you get about 10 minutes to meet them. And uh, you, you see the woman, you know, in normal clothes without her bio on, and you, you have to make a decision. So if you make a decision to get married, obviously there's a ceremony. So I was invited to two of those. And the unique thing was we were in a, uh, a large, what would be like a conference center with two big ballrooms. And uh, the way the Saturday wedding works is there's a, uh, the men's side and the woman's side. And so the two do not mix. So we, we sat down on the men's side and, and the groom gets to go over to the woman's side for a little bit. And the, uh, the bride does not come over to the men's side. But we sat down around circles of trays, eating uh, goat and rice with our hands. And, uh, you know, the, there was uh, dancing and all that, but it was guys and girls separated. So that was probably the most unique uh, wedding I've ever been to. Yeah, that sounds so. like that sounds like an experience for sure. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, there's a million reasons to travel, but one of the top ones is definitely for the stories. Yeah, yeah, exactly. John, thank you so much for your time today. Well, Megan, I appreciate it. And thanks for listening. And uh, it's great. I love your podcast. Well, so uh, I, I look forward to listening to more of your episodes. Yeah, and thank have a good weekend. Thanks. And I really enjoyed our discussion today and getting to know you and hearing about your experiences overseas. Uh, you shared some great stories with us. And for that, I thank you. To all of our listeners today, I hope you've enjoyed today's discussion as well. And I hope you'll tune in next week. Until then, take care of yourselves and have a great week. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personiv.com. Thanks for listening.